Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Audio Judo. I'm Kyle. And I'm Matthew. Hello. We are proud members of the Pantheon Podcast Network, your source for all of the premier music podcasts. We are quickly approaching our two-year anniversary. Uh, yeah. If you have been with us that whole time, thank you so much for sticking with us. We hope you will continue uh, to join us as we move into year three. If you are new, welcome. We are glad that you found us. Please get a hold of us. Uh, let us know what you'd like to hear or what you think about the podcast. We love getting feedback, no matter how minute it may be. Uh, that's the only way to make the show better. Yeah. Also, if you're new to Audio Judo, you may not have heard that we also have a spinoff podcast called Audio Judo Does Jazz, mm-hmm. which you can find at our website, audiojudo.com forward slash AJDJ. Uh, as it sounds by the name, it is a 16-part series devoted to jazz, as seen through the eyes of your resident jazz fan and spirit guide, our show consultant, Chris. So tune in, check that one out as well. Uh, Please. You wouldn't be able to tell this, uh, because we have never, ever missed a release date. True. Uh, here, here, Randy, well done. Indeed. Um, but we haven't recorded for a month or so, so if it sounds like we have forgotten what we're doing, uh, you should forgive us, because we may have indeed forgotten. I mean, it's pretty easy. We're going to take the lug nuts off, and then you pull the tire off, and then you Wait. take the tire over your... You are we let the air out of it if there's any left? Do we all of a sudden tire. become car guys? Oh, what are we supposed to be doing? Oh, I thought we were talking about movies. Are we talking about Marvel movies? I think that's correct, yes. Okay, good. This is uh, Mar- <laughs> the Marvel Us podcast. Uh, no, we're music. <laughs> oh, music. Oh, music. damn it. Okay. That's it. So today we're going to do things a little differently. Yeah. We're talking about our favorite records uh, that were actually the only record that a particular band produced, as Kyle liked to call it. The one and done albums. The one and done albums. Uh, I like these special episodes because it gives us a chance to break formula and give listeners maybe five to six bands and records to listen to yeah. instead of just one per episode. Uh, we only do probably about two or three of these differently structured episodes a season, so uh, they're quite a bit of fun. Uh, normally, Kyle and I don't tell each other our choices for this type of episode, but uh, this time we did, so we would avoid any overlap. Yeah. Um, there are surprisingly few bands that have only released one album. Even 
that you'd want to listen to. That you would want to listen to. I was about to say, there are quite a few that have released, only had one album, uh, but you you don't care for it, or you can't find anymore. You don't, uh, yeah. And a, there are a lot of really terrible bands that made it to two. So. Yeah, somebody figure that one out. Uh, but we each chose three records, uh, and they're a pretty good cross-section of music genres. Uh, what we do know about doing an episode like this is that everyone will have an opinion. Everyone will have different choices than we make, and that is fantastic. That's exactly what we want. We know there are others that we could have chosen, maybe better albums, more recognized albums, but these are ours. So write to us. Let us know what you would have preferred. Write to us on Twitter at Audio Judo. Um, I think we should flip a coin, Kyle, and decide who goes first. All right, that sounds like a good plan. You got I a have coin. a coin right here. Sweet. And uh, because it's my house, I'm going to let you call it. All right. So wait, so if I if I get this, I get to go second? If but you, if I lose, if I lose, I go first. Right. If you don't call okay. it correctly, you go first. Okay. If I lose, so I go ahead and call it in the air. All right. Heads. It's tails. I mean, good. I get to go first. Yay for Kyle. Ooh. Well, all right. I'm just going to jump right into it then. So, uh, please the, do. The first one that I picked is a, a band called The Seahorses, uh, and the album is called Do It Yourself. No sex joke intended. <clears throat> I'm sorry, the, the album was just called Do It Yourself. That second part was just me talking. Uh, so the band, probably most famously, uh, John Squire, the uh, guitarist and the guy who created the artwork for the album cover, formerly of the Stone Roses. This is a band and album that I actually heard before. Right? Primarily because of their association with Stone Roses. That's pretty much, I think, why everybody has heard of the Seahorses. I loved the Stone Roses' first record so much, uh, <laughs> and that would have easily made this episode if they hadn't released the trash album second coming <laughs> there you go two albums two albums right the first album is so good right and the second album is such garbage we, i feel like i did write in my notes we will have to go back and do an episode on the stone roses first album oh, it's on my list good i'm perfect uh anyways john squire kind of the founding member of uh, the seahorses uh he's a mostly self-taught guitarist uh, and he's very good. He went on after the Seahorses to a solo career in music uh, and moved into painting and media art. He's an excellent painter. Sculptor, which yeah. uh, we'll get back to that when I talk about the cover here in a minute. Chris Helm, uh, vocals, steel string guitar, and backing vocals for uh, the Seahorses. I feel like I've mentioned that too many times already, but I'm going to say it again. The Seahorses. Uh, he started performing in pubs and folk clubs around York uh, around age 19. Uh, a friend of John Squire's, Martin Herbert, discovered Helm busking outside of a Woolworths on Coney Street in York. Uh, he was so impressed, he asked for a demo tape, which he passed along to Squire. What band are we talking about right now? The Seahorses. Oh, okay. After the I, Seahorses. I had forgotten. After the Seahorses, <laughs> Chris Helm went on to uh, tour playing material written while in the Seahorses with Stuart Fletcher. Uh, <laughs> which, which NME described as fairly unambitious rock music. Uh, he then mm. went on to form a band called The Yards. That's how you want to be talked about. Right around 1999. Fairly, Fairly uh, ambitious. <laughs> Fairly ambitious. Uh, Stuart Fletcher on bass guitar. Uh, before the Seahorses, he had been performing in local York bands since he was about 11 years old. Man, I have said, I <laughs> I honestly, I'm going to try to... I'm going to try to, on the fly, edit the the band there, name out of the rest of this. There's absolutely no it. way people are going to be questioning who you're talking right? about. Right? Uh, March 1996, Fletcher was spotted by Squire in the, a York venue called Fibbers, uh, where he was playing with a local blues pub band uh, called the Blue Flies. He was filling in for the band's usual bass player, who was unable to play due to a repetitive strain injury. Uh, following the gig, Fletcher was handed a demo tape of Squire's and asked to join the band. That band, by the way, is the Seahorses. <laughs> 
uh, <laughs> after the seahorses broke up, uh-huh, uh, uh-huh. He, he toured with Chris Helm playing some of their uh, unreleased al- uh, tracks. Uh, he also went on to play lots of local York bands, uh, play with lots of local York bands, most notably uh, We Could Be Astronauts. Uh, he also does quite a bit of charity work for the British uh, NHS, the National Health Services. Oh, that's good. Uh, Andy Watts on drums and backing vocals. Uh, he's actually a guitar player, uh, songwriter, and graphic designer, but he's been playing the drums since he uh, was fairly young. After the Seahorses, he went on uh, to do <laughs> graphic design. He's also composed music for movies and videos uh, and done a lot of directing. So, mm-hmm. also... The big name here, in my opinion, produced by Tony Viscotti. I have that. If you've never heard of him, he basically did every album of David Bowie's from 1969 to 2016 with some breaks for Bowie's other side projects in the 80s and 90s. T-Rex, the band, the rock band T-Rex. Mark Boland. Yeah, Mark. uh, Yeah, Mark Boland. He did basically all our albums from 1968 to 1981. He did two early Badfinger albums which we need to cover them at some point as well. Yep. He did four Straubs albums. Uh, I like which, the Straubs. Yeah, right? Three Thin Lizzy albums, uh, a few of the Moody Blues albums, um, and just dozens and dozens and dozens of other uh, one-off albums. For so he was really scrounging for work. Really. I mean, he just could not find anybody. Until the, the seahorses sea came, came along. <laughs> so this album came out in uh, May 26, 1997. Uh, the cover is a photograph of a sculpture by John Squire. It's a globe made up of puzzle pieces, and it is also titled Do It Yourself. Mm-hmm. So that's where they got the title of the album from. I also noticed the other day, it really looks like the Wikipedia logo. It does. Ripped this off. <laughs> so uh, yeah. take a look at both of them. <laughs> if you go to the Wikipedia article for this, you can see them almost side by side. When it was released, it entered the UK charts at number two, beat out only by Gary Barlow's solo album, Open Road. Uh, went on to go platinum in the UK. Uh, there were three charting singles from this album in the UK. Uh, the first one is uh, Love is the Law, which hit number three in the UK and number one on the Scottish singles charts. And it sounds a little bit like this. The Seahorse's biggest hit uh, also had some airplay in the U.S. uh, because uh, there was a music video made for MTV of it uh, that's Blinded by the Sun. It hit number seven in the U.K., and it sounds a little bit like this. Things you've never done Walking in circles Blinded by the sun 
So you're saying those are two different songs? Those are two different songs, surprisingly. Okay. Could have uh, fooled me. And here's the third one that sounds very similar as well. Uh, it's Love Me and Leave Me, which came in at number 16. So that song, Love Me and Leave Me, uh-huh. uh, was co-written by Liam Gallagher from mm. Oasis. I know Matthew's favorite band I don't care time. for all these Oasis connections, uh, Kyle. I'm very sorry. I really... I'm, I'm very sorry about that. I really that. feel like you have it out for me totally for some reason. Accidental. But I will say this. Did I offend you in a past life? Or you, this one? You are, offend me in a future life, actually. Oh. It's very complicated. <laughs> it's weird space-time some, thing. Yeah. But uh, a lot of that British sound that was around in the 90s, homogenized. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. They, it would be very difficult for somebody who wasn't paying close attention to tell a lot of these bands apart. <laughs> right? No. I mean, so, uh, so the question for me is, what makes this album a better album than, say, an Oasis album? Why should this one be a standout album? So first of all, like we discussed, the musicians themselves are all very good. Yeah. They're all great. The second reason, to me, is because of the bands that supported the seahorses and wanted them to succeed. So the seahorses did a short UK tour in December, 1997 with support from third eye blind, which was a huge band at the yep. time. Yep. Uh, and you know, having them basically open for you is a pretty big thing. After that, the seahorses, uh, played support slots for bands like, oh, I don't know, the rolling stones. Who? Yeah. never heard of them. Probably. I, I don't have the exact dates, but I'm guessing this was the bridges to Babylon tour. Uh, while they were in the UK. Mm-hmm. That uh, sounds right. You too. Who? Yeah, again, never heard of them before. Uh, but again, uh, probably the Pop Mart tour while they were in the UK. Mm-hmm. Another huge tour. Uh, and Oasis. Again, Matthew. The Be Here Now tour uh, with <laughs> with uh, different drummers. Uh, Mal Scott and Toby Drummond uh, while they were on tour with these bands. Mm-hmm. So the question is that we I am asking on all three of these albums is, what the hell happened? Why was there only one album? What fell apart? That's a good question. I feel like John Squire was the driving force mm-hmm. behind it. And I never felt, even when he was with Stone Roses, I never felt like his heart was necessarily in music all the way. Yeah. He had a, a foot in in both areas, that graphic design, and he's a fantastic artist. Yeah. And I, I think split down the middle like that, he wasn't able to really pick one. Yeah. And then he just kind of... I think he just kind of drifted. And on top of that, from too, project to project, there was sort of a this this band in particular, the Seahorses. Uh, <laughs> now I'm just doing it to be obnoxious. Uh, they did this the classic band thing where there was so much infighting and they started to get on each other's nerves, and then it all kind of fell apart. So, like I said, uh, when they were on tour, they used drummers uh, Mal Scott and Toby Drummond because Andy Watts uh, left the group supposedly to spend more time with his family. Uh, Watts later claimed that he was actually asked to leave the band by manager Steve Atherton at a meeting with the band's accountants on behalf of the band because they did not approve of the drummer's excessive behavior on tour and felt he did not fit with the desired image for the band. Drummer's excessive behavior? <laughs> what? Uh, That's... Yeah. Uh, Those two things just go hand in hand. Right? You should just expect that. Helm stated that he had been, quote, playing like an arse. Ah. 
So, Summer's playing like an arse. And Watts later put it down to his cocaine usage at the time. So lots oh, of explanations that. for why the drummer was. There you go. <laughs> uh, now we get to it. There were plans to make a second album, though. They went back to the studio in early January 1999 with a new drummer named Mark Heaney to record their next album. However, this is where tensions really started to reach ahead between Squire and Helm. Uh, and eventually Squire walked out of the studio. Uh, officially, they announced their breakup January 23rd, 1999 with a press release citing musical differences. So they did have some... Um, There's an unreleased second album, too. Yeah. They basically have enough material yeah. to make a whole second Minus album. Blue. It even had a name. Yeah. So it just kind of fell apart because of all the same old, same old band shit. Yep. Which is sad to me because I think they... I think they, you're going to see that quite a bit here. Yes. As, as we're talking about why these albums it, or why these bands fell apart, why there was no second record. Uh, yeah. Band squabbles, stuff like that. Inability to connect from one one reason to the other it, it it's a special thing when you have a band that can stay together yes for 30 or 20 30 years and uh continue to to be uh civil yeah. to one another so that's it that's uh do it yourself by oh what the hell is the name of the band the strobs the strop oh uh, no thin lizzy the sea <laughs> the seahorses the seahorses that's, the seahorses. that's by that's the, by the seahorses all right that's it that's it i like it that's a good start. You're, you got us off and rolling. Uh, my first choice is uh, uh, an album called Maggie's Dream by a band, ironically enough, called Maggie's Dream. Oh. Isn't that weird? A self-titled album, you say? Yes. Uh, it was. Uh, this album was released in 1990, same year I graduated high school. Band formed in the late 80s in the L.A. area with members uh, Lonnie Hillier, Raph Hernandez, Danny Paloma, Tony James, and singer Draco Rosa. Rosa was a member of the group Menudo in the early 80s. Look, it's Menudo! Singing with uh, Ricky Martin and the like, and was the main singer on their hit single uh, called Hold Me. And while this would be the only album that the band would release, Rosa would go on to have significant solo success in Mexico, writing hits for Ricky Martin and other Latin artists. I remember coming across this album in the usual way. You go ahead and open it. <laughs> I was uh, I, was I was drawn. Waiting. I was waiting. Sorry. I was drawn to the cover art. Like most, I mean, just walking around the record store, a well-crafted cover is going to drag me in every time. Uh, so I bought it, and I was hooked right away. And it's this hybrid of rock, soul, and funk with some Latin elements thrown in there as well. And what I noticed was that it sounded a lot like Lenny Kravitz, who had just released his solo debut, Let Love Rule, the year before, 1989. I start thumbing through the liner notes, and they thanked him in the liner notes. Turns out, he actually performed on several of the demos from this record before they entered the studio. Oh. And he actually changed his specific musical direction after recording those demos to incorporate some of these sounds and do his sound. And here's a piece of Love and Tears right here.
So when I listened to it, not necessarily this song specifically, but other songs on the record, I got part Funkadelic, part James Brown, and a lot of Terrence Trent Darby. Oh, yeah. Who was big around that time. Uh, and they were really interesting songs, and they combined these sounds with a really socially conscious set of lyrics as well. That combination was very vital to a kid just coming out of high school and starting to experience the real world. So for me, finding a band like this is really important for an adolescent. There's something really unique about feeling like you have a band all to yourself. Invariably, over the last 30 years, I would mention this band to someone and they would say, who? <laughs> and that would be my chance to share the band, almost like an evangelical finding someone who hasn't accepted Jesus as their savior, their eyes light up and they have a chance to use the tips they've been taught to share the gospel. And that's kind of what happens. I would get this CD out and show them this very private world and see if they liked it as much as I did. Some did, some <laughs> didn't. But now I have a podcast that I can share with a lot of people all at once, so I don't have to do it in Did you uh, Did you ever vet girlfriends using this album? <laughs> no. <laughs> like, it was just like in a CD changer, and it would come on, and you'd be like, look, two or, th two or three songs in, you'd be really mm. paying close attention, mm. be like, what, what do you think of this song? <laughs> I don't really like it. Like, Get out of the car. <laughs> I used this, uh, I used a bunch of these songs on, on all of the mixtapes that I made to court Heather. Ooh, very nice. You know, you just throw one of these on there, like... Mm-hmm. Funky, huh? It's pretty funky. <laughs> and sometimes, you know, sometimes their lyrics get a little heavy-handed and they attempt to get overly deep, but for the most part, they're excellent. And it's the groove that gets you, like on this song right here. Definitely one of my favorites. Do you have anything to say about any of this? No, 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 no. You got no. nothing to say I, at all? I, honestly, I, I, I had so much uh, research on my own three albums. I listened to your three albums. That makes sense. But uh, I did not really want to write a whole lot about them because I figured you would have a lot of uh, detailed notes. But then if you, you start to ask the question like you asked, the uh, why did they break up? Yeah. You know, what, what caused that? And it's exactly the same thing as you found with, uh, who was it? Oh, the seahorses. The seahorses. That's right. That they just you just stop connecting at one point or another. Draco Rosa wants to go do become more of a solo entity, yeah. and they just start to fall apart. And I found an interview with uh, Lonnie Hillier, who was one of the main songwriters, and and they were asking like, what 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 did everybody go and do? And they're like, well, Draco's huge, and in Mexico, one of the guys, uh, the drummer, passed away in a motorcycle accident. Two of the other guys are out of music entirely, and he's making. He, he kind of does like show tunes and stuff. And I'm like, well, at least there's careers, but it's like that magic at just one specific point in time, the 12 songs that they're able to produce just stand that test of time. I think it's a wonderful album. It's, it's definitely one of my favorites. And that's all I have for that. It's awesome that you can find it too. Yeah. That's, that's. I couldn't for a long time. Like it wasn't on iTunes years ago. I still have my CD copy upstairs. It's lucky. 
And but it's on Spotify now, so you can find it. That is one of the things about. Um, Just make sure you put the apostrophe in the right place. <laughs> there are a whole bunch of uh, there are a whole bunch of bands that sound very interesting that only released one album. That you can't find anymore. They no. just don't exist anymore because a lot of uh, a lot of uh, like you know I know I've talked about before how I enjoy surf music. A lot of those surf bands from the fifties and sixties and even into the seventies were like offshoots. You know, like one person was like, "Well, oh, let's form a band," and they would form a band to record one album, and then everybody would go their own separate ways because they were young and you know music wasn't a career choice for them. Yeah, and you can find snippets and pieces of these all over the place, but you can never find the actual album anywhere. And they just you know presumably there's a master recording for all these somewhere, somewhere, but that's it's never going to come because there's no money in it. It's quite if you're looking for something specific, the best go to Discogs, or you can actually yeah. just start going to Garage Sales or Salvation Army and just thumb through the files because they they have thousands of records that are like what is this yeah and you can find some pretty good stuff there indeed you're next i am next and the next album we're going to talk about is called uh black monk time by the monks and if you are a fan of punk rock this is sort of the the proto this is the proto punk rock album it is the granddaddy of punk rock yeah right here this is very unexpected i right? think because, I mean, I know you like to think outside the box and pick things that are pretty obscure. Mm -hmm. So I suppose it's not that unexpected for you. Uh, but it was, or is, or was, quite the subversive oh, yeah. album. And I had never heard, I never heard before you mentioned it. So it's Krautrock. Yeah. Punk music made by Americans mm -hmm. that formed their band in West Germany. Yeah. It's uh, a very unique story. You it tell is. It. You yeah. tell so it. the band was formed as the Torquays in uh, Gelenhausen, West Germany in 1964 by five American GIs. Uh, Gary Berger on lead guitar and lead vocals. Larry Clark on organ, backing vocals, and piano. Eddie Shaw on bass guitar, backing vocals, trumpet, and brass instruments. Dave Day on banjo, rhythm guitar, banjo, guitar, and backing vocals. That's the banjo guitar, not Banjo and guitar. Banjo guitar. The banjo guitar. I'd never heard of it before, but... Uh, and Roger Johnson on drums and backing vocals. This was 19, late 1963. Um, before they had uh, Roger Johnson on drums, there was a German guy named Hans. Hans. Nobody seems to have any information about, <laughs> who played drums with them for a while. He then uh, disappeared, and they hired Roger Johnson for drums. Uh, Gary and Dave had performed together before uh, as an on-duty musical duo called Rhythm Rockers, and they recruited Larry and Hans to bolster their sound. Eddie uh, auditioned for the band and was reluctantly accepted by Berger. Uh, Shaw, who was a jazz musician by trade, was recruited largely due to the band's urgent need for a bass guitarist, rather than for his experience with the instrument, which was limited to some private practices prior to meeting with the band. You know, as you do. Uh huh. Uh, the name The Torquays was inspired by Gary's admiration for the Fireballs hit, uh, the instrumental Torquay. Uh, they began playing covers of American rock hits uh, with very little of their own music uh, thrown in every once in a while. Uh, bars of military hangouts around Gellenhausen. They were noticed by talent manager Hans Reich, uh, and convinced the, who convinced the band to stay in Germany after their military careers ended. Hans Reich. Hans Reich. He would be technically the first Reich to notice them. <laughs> That's a bad joke. I'm sorry. Oh, boy. <laughs> uh, <laughs> it was after that that Hans left the band, and they recruited uh, Roger Johnson to play drums. Their very first single... They produced 500 copies of. The A-side was uh, a track called There She Walks, and the B-side was Boys Are Boys. Uh, they sold them at performances. And if you can find a copy of that single, 
a, an original pressing of that single, yeah. uh, you're a wealthy person. Ooh. They go for tons of money. So after that, they began to experiment with uh, all kinds of new sounds. Uh, while they were playing a short residency at the Rio Bar in Stuttgart, uh, they began to develop a more avant-garde style that incorporated feedback and distortion, which was uh, new at the time, along with some new methods of playing music. Yeah. And this is another one of those things. I know we've talked about this on previous episodes where you listen to this today and it's pretty tame. And it's, you know, oh, of course, they did distortion and, you know, uh, uh, feedback and that kind of stuff. At the time, nobody was doing this. They were contemporaries of the Beatles. They absolutely Which were. is absolutely amazing because their sound is so much more rooted in the late 70s than the early to mid right. 60s. They were way ahead of their time. When you listen to this album, if you played this album to somebody, they would say, oh, this has got to be a punk band from, what, 79, 79 80? 80. No, it's... 1965, I believe, was in the album. 64, what did 64. 64 when the album came out. They wrote about the Vietnam War. Yeah. They demonized society. They played with feedback, with distorted noises, became direct influences on the progenitor punk band Velvet Underground. Yeah. And the Underground have always, in my mind, anyway, been the first punk band. Oh, yeah. But I'd say I have to revisit that idea now after listening to this record, because this is so pushed the envelope back several years. A lot of people, when they hear this album, have that same thing happen. They're like, wait a minute, this was before Velvet Underground? This was before... And and not only that, and you'll, you might talk about that, but their look freaked people out oh, as yeah. well. I'm getting there right okay. now, actually. So uh, they were signed by a German management team uh, composed of Carl Ramey, Walter Neiman, uh, Gunter, and Kiki Newman, uh, with the understanding that they would change their look and the band name. So change it, they did. Because before this, they played in just, you know... Casual clothes, and they all changed it. They did. They just had, you know, there was no specific look, but they changed their name to the Monks, and then they changed their look to go along with it. They wore tailor made black robes with uh, rope ties around their waists, and all five members uh, got tonsure hairdos. Tonsures. Which, if you don't know what that is, it's where you're bald on top and then hair around the edges. Right. They did that on purpose. Some of us can grow that naturally, (laughs) but others voluntarily sculpted that into their heads. Turns out you're a proto-punk rocker, Matthew. You have no idea. So just picture Friar Tuck from Robin Hood. Yeah. And you got it. Uh, And their change in look was met with these mixed attitudes from their audiences. Younger fans loved it. They were curious and they they thought it was very playful and fun, but Germany is a surprisingly conservative place. Get out of here. There are a lot of uh, Christians there, uh, and they were very shocked and at times furious at what they considered blasphemy on the part of the group. Uh, So the band went into the uh, studio in Cologne in November 1965 to record their only album, Black Monk Time, uh, which came out in March 1966 and had 12 tracks. The cover, very simple. It's just black with the name Monks and the album title, Black Monk Time. This album was radically different from most of the stuff that they were playing in bars and nightclubs around Germany. Uh, take a listen to this first clip. All right, my name's Gary, 
atomic bomb. Stop it! Stop it! I don't like it! Stop it! What's your meaning, Larry? Ah, you think like I think. You're a monk. I'm a monk. We're all monks. Dave, Larry, Eddie, Roger, everybody, let's go. It's beat time. It's hot time. It's monk time now. Yeah! So that was a clip from the song Monk Time. Uh, it's a very anti-Vietnam War song, uh, very political, uh, and it's also the opener to this album. So uh, obviously, most of their music has a political or social message behind it. And they were, you know, we talked about how they were sort of way out there. They were way ahead of the game. And it did not occur to me until I was researching this more deeply why. So they were producing music in Germany that would be heard by lots of people that didn't speak English. Mm-hmm. So even the Germans who spoke English might have had a very hard time understanding English that was sung because, you know, it's harder to understand music because you bend, you know, the way words sound to fit with the lyrics or to fit with the melody. Uh, Julian Cope of the band The Teardrop Explodes, who hails this as a lost classic, said, quote, The Monk's Black Monk Time is a gem born of isolation and horrible deep down knowledge that no one is really listening to what you're saying. And the monks took full artistic advantage of their lucky-slash-unlucky position as American rockers in a country that was desperate for the real thing. They wrote songs that would have been horribly mutilated by arrangers and producers uh, had they been back in America. But there was no need for them to clean up their act, as the Beatles and others had had, had to do on returning home. For there were no artistic constraints in a country that liked the sound of beat music but had no idea about its lyrical content. <laughs> Reading that, it just it all of a sudden it all fit into place for me. It's like, oh yeah, they can be former GIs who are against the Vietnam War, because in America, people would be oh boo, the flag in America, America. Why are you America. singing like that? In Germany, they can sing that way because the Germans aren't understanding the words. They're just like, oh yeah, we can dance to this. This is a funky '60s beat. We like this. That's safe. So uh, at the time when this came out, uh, accolades were pretty few and far between. But like we said before, a lot of people today love this album and believe that it is probably, if not a proto-punk album, one of the first punk albums. Definitely. So I found this uh, I found this album quite a while ago on an underground music site that I used to frequent back in the Wild West days of the internet. Sure. And it really like it just struck a chord with me. I don't know why. I just, I really enjoyed it. I was not particularly deep into punk music or anything, but this album, I, I loved it. And I really had always hoped that I was like, oh, I can't find anything else from the monks. Maybe there's, you know, maybe I just can't find them or maybe there's more. And sadly, there, there really isn't. There's um, no, yeah, there isn't. Yeah. But uh, one other thing I did find kind of interesting while researching this album the track Blast Off uh, opens with a very interesting guitar sound. And I honestly think this sound, just because of the the people that the monks were sort of invested in and the people they would go on to influence shortly afterwards, I think this could be a direct influence on David Bowie's Space Oddity, huh. which came out three years after this album came out. So uh, take a listen. Here's a clip from both. Tell me what you think.
obviously, again, I have no evidence to support that. There's definitely some similarities. Right. And I definitely feel like Bowie would have been one of the people that had heard an underground German proto-punk band. Pro- yeah, probably. Very soon after they released their album. Yeah. But I unfortunately, that. again... Who knows what that guy was influenced by? Right? It's so many. Uh, unfortunately, though, after that, it all started to fall apart. So uh, after the release of Black Monk Time, uh, the band went on a six-month tour uh, around Germany, uh, around West Germany, to bars and clubs to promote the uh, the album. Uh, but it didn't really go over well because a lot of audiences didn't get, you know, what they were trying to do. The music was loud and blaring in these little tiny bars and clubs, and mm-hmm. it didn't really play well. And they began to get urged by their management to change their sound, which is always a good sign. Uh, as part of that, they did release a song called Cuckoo, uh, along with a, another song called I Can't Get Over You, which were um, released as a singles album that are both much more poppy, um, very much not at all like anything else on this album. You can find both of those out there, and I would say go give Cuckoo a listen. It's It honestly feels to me like something out of The Sound of Music. <laughs> <laughs> it's very, uh, very bizarre. Um, anyways, they, they went on tour in Sweden as well, uh, which concluded with a performance on Swedish national television, which, uh, I think you can find the clip of that on YouTube. It's, uh, uh, surprisingly well recorded for a television show from the late sixties. It sounds really good. Um, but on returning, uh, upon returning from German, uh, oh my God. Upon returning to Germany from Sweden in February 1967, uh, they learned that Polydor Records, who was their American distributor, had refused to distribute Black Monk Time in the U.S. because of its anti-Vietnam War themes. Uh. So, yeah. So the band, at the request of their management, began to change their sound again uh, to incorporate more psychedelic rock influences uh, on the single uh, Love Can Tame the Wild uh, with the B-side He Went Down to the Sea. Uh, Again, there's a lot more psychedelic influences on there. Um, but tension amongst the band started to swell uh, in 1967 when they were on tour with Jimi Hendrix experience. Uh, they had a lot of uh, problems and uh, sort on of tour with who now the Jimi Hendrix experience, you know, just, what just opening for Jimi Hendrix in Germany. No big deal. That's uh, incredible. Weirdly enough, they were actually scheduled to tour Vietnam, mm. but just one day before their departure, Larry Clark left uh, and went home to Texas. And the band found out through their management that he uh, was no longer interested in being in the band. And they officially broke up in September 1967. Uh, Since then, they have actually gotten back together a couple of times to perform live. That's good. Um, They did a release. They released a compilation album titled Five Upstart Americans in 1999. But it's all, you know, previous work. Um, Coinciding with that release, they performed live at an event called Cave Stomp in New York City. Got a lot of uh, garage bands from the 60s back together. Uh, it would be the first time the Monks had performed in America ever. And that event sounds awesome. Yeah, it does. Uh, they also released a live album from the, that performance called Let's Start a Beat, live from Cave Stomp. Uh, the last time they had performed together was in 2004, right here in Vegas, at an event called Rock Around, which I couldn't find a whole lot of information about. That's too Sounds bad. interesting. Uh, sadly, Roger Johnson passed away in November 2004 from lung cancer. Uh, Dave Day died in January uh, 2008 from a massive heart attack and Gary Berger sadly passed away in 2014 of pancreatic cancer. So don't think there's going to be a reunion anytime soon, at least not on this side of, uh, eternity, but that's it. Uh, that's the monks black monk time. It is a, if you are, like I said, if you are interested in any type of punk music, 
give this a listen. If you're interested in finding out, uh, you know, finding bands that sort of pushed the envelope and were completely out there at the time they were were released, this is definitely one to give a quick listen to. Sounds good. I will. Uh, I'm going to check it out again after I've already listened to it. But it's 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 really cool. Sweet. And and it I believe it was it had to be one of the first ones. Oh yeah. Uh, we are going to take a break before we continue, so uh, we'll be right back. Hey, welcome back, everybody. <laughs> uh, my second choice. Mm. Is it my second? Yeah, it is. Yeah. Uh, is a band called Longview, and the record is Mercury. This is, uh, so years ago, uh, I had started a blog that kind of served as a love letter back to the people back home. Where I was from, uh, I didn't feel like making weekly calls to update family members on the ongoing life of my family. Fair enough. Uh, out west, so I thought writing once a week or so about some interesting things about our lives would serve the purpose instead. And as would normally be the case, that turned into exposés about things I liked or things I wanted to talk about. <laughs> uh, and one of the things I did was write a post entitled 10 Life Changers." Um, on, on which this record makes an appearance. Oh. Uh, and this is what I wrote. So I wrote, this really is a hidden gem. And I had hoped that this album was going to hearken the return of arena rock, but alas, to no avail. This album was released in 2005 by a bunch of Englishmen who had found varying degrees of success with English bar bands, kind of a super group of British bar bands. I found it completely by accident at the record store, taken, I guess, with the cover of the CD, as is normal, I was more than pleasantly surprised at the results. It has the big, thick arena rock sound, loud wall of sound type guitars with airy synths and big drums. And the first track further so impressed me that I would use it on my demo reel for the next few years. Uh, unfortunately, this band's career never materialized. They, they tried to record a follow-up album over the next several years and ended up scrapping it on multiple occasions. It's a shame, really. But this record lives on and has found a permanent place in the six-disc changer in my car. <laughs> Obviously, uh, there's some dated stuff, considering I posted it on December 11th, 2008. Yeah. But it's accurate, and here's a clip of Further. that i like that a lot it's uh i hope that you have uh, further clips to follow up that further clip i ah i see what you did you're uh, welcome everybody what i so what i said there was true what what i said on which my uh blog statement was absolutely true i used this song as the primary focus of my demo reel for many years it has this 
great quality of size and scope and lends itself well to that. But so many of the songs on the record have that same quality. This was about the time that Coldplay uh, was hitting its commercial peak, uh, and Snow Patrol and Muse were finding pretty good success. And while I like Muse's first record, I kind of lost interest in the band. And Snow Patrol has some really interesting songs, but their records started to get a little boring. So other, and other than Coldplay's first record, Parachutes, I never really got into them. Uh, but this band kind of provided an alternative. Music that be, uh, could be played in, in an arena setting or alternately uh, very loud, you know, wherever, in the car or whatever. And it held a lot of promise. And uh, the next song is called When You Sleep, which is a similar quality, and it sounds like this. Just what you wanted to be even in my dreams She's caught a look in her eyes So what I wrote in that initial review was generally true. They did try to record a second album, actually released a remix album called Subversions. Um, but by 2015, they had finally disbanded, and the lead songwriter, Rob McVeigh, had uh, been working on a solo record, which apparently never materialized as well. They did achieve some degree of success, though, with this record. It reached number 45 on the UK album chart when it was originally released in 2003. I mentioned that it was released in 2005, but that was just when it had a bigger label release, and that version went to number 29. So they actually had pretty hmm. good chart success. Yeah. Um, and that, that always weirds me out. So many versions of the same thing, you know? Yeah. A re-release of a this and a this, and it's charting, and how do you keep track of that shit? I don't know. Even just the, the singles and albums thing, where it's like the single went to number one, but the album only went to number 30. And it's like, what? okay. What? So <laughs> it was played- and this is how you know that it's good. It was played on an episode of One Tree Hill. Oh, you, you, fantastic uh, it's uh, metric for always how high watermark, right? Uh, and the song Further uh, that I played earlier was used as bumper music pretty extensively during the U.S. Open tennis tournament oh. in 2006. So they used it quite a bit. But I've forever loved this record. And, and like I said, as we were coming out of that, that it's different than Coldplay. It has a, it, Coldplay has a very flat sound to me. This is a very round sound that that I always enjoyed. And and in big speakers, yeah. it's full. Full and not like blocky full like we've talked about Oasis like yeah, just like not like loudness wars full like right. well mixed, well kind of put together. Um and I, I just love this record. I, I noticed that as well listening to this album. It very much uh, the dynamic range is very high on it. It very much uh I didn't listen to it on speakers. I listened to it on headphones. Right. But even with good headphones, it sounds phenomenal. And yeah. it sounds I, – I when you said arena rock right at the beginning of this, I was like, oh, yeah, that's exactly what it is. It is arena rock that's designed to get a crowd up and to get them, them pumped, but not like crazy pumped. No. You know what I mean? Like excited to be listening to the music as a crowd. And it 
I, I liked it a lot. I was very, this was something that when you, I listened to about 10 seconds of this when I very first downloaded it and I was like, ugh. And then I went back and listened to it from beginning <laughs> to end and I was like, oh yeah, okay. It's, and you know, being a child of the eighties as I was, grew up in the seventies and the eighties, yeah. like arena rock still holds a place near to my heart. Like that, that cavernous sound where there's, there's a, there's a fullness to it, but there's still spots where certain in- instruments can shine. And, uh, you know, that it's, we were talking about it the other day, I was talking to somebody about, you know, there's no arena bo- rock bands anymore. And I'm like, yeah. yeah, there aren't really, there's bands that play arenas, but they're not really arena rock bands. So, uh, that's unfortunate. So, uh, that's a long view and the album is Mercury. If you look on Spotify for long view, don't be, uh, disappointed if you just see the bluegrass band. Mm. Um, you have to, you have to look a little deeper. Yeah. You're up. I am up. My third choice is uh, Dennis Wilson, Pacific Ocean Blue. Dennis Wilson from the Biatch Boys? Uh, from the Biatch Boys. Uh, middle brother of Brian and Carl Wilson, one of the founding members of the Beach Boys. Probably at their mother Audrey's insistence uh, that Brian be included in the band. I'm sorry, <laughs> that Dennis be included in the band. You gotta let Dennis play. Right? Uh, but he sucks. <laughs> that That is such a misconception, too. Like... <laughs> So uh, I'm just kidding. I'm quoting Brian. I got like, uh, right. I got all flustered. I don't want to. I don't want to like, have him in but, the band. He sucks. <laughs> Definitely the most laid back of uh, uh, the Wilson brothers. Do as he told Brian. Right. Uh, also, the only one of the Beach Boys that could surf. Ah, uh, well, that's weird. Uh, I mean, what do I need to say? They, they were the friggin' Beach Boys. I don't know. I don't think I needed to do an introduction to them. Uh, Dennis obviously was the drummer. Uh, for the band, and although there are myths to the contrary, he can actually be heard on most of the Beach Boys tracks. That's uh, true. I'm not. I'm not. Oh yeah, uh, several. Yes, several. And, and because the, uh, Hal Blaine plays on most of the Wrecking Crew plays on yes. a shit ton of Beach Boys records. Yeah. Um. There was there but were a lot of there. myths. There were a lot of myths going around that he did not play. Specifically, though, Pet Sounds, uh, which we covered in a previous episode, mm-hmm. he did only play the drums on the track. That's not me. The rest of Pet Sounds uh, is not Dennis Wilson. In January 1965, uh, when Brian announced that he was no longer going to tour with the Beach Boys and instead would be working more in the studio, Dennis was absolutely devastated. Brian later said in an interview that Dennis picked up a, quote, big ashtray and told some people to get out of there or he'd hit them on the head with it. He kind of blew it. That's a typical reaction, I think. Right? You know, pick up an ashtray, smack somebody on the head with it. So in the latter part of the 60s, he began writing songs for the Beach Boys, but most weren't used. Uh, In January 1967, he recorded a track called I Don't Know that was also left unreleased. Uh, In December 67, he recorded a piece called Two Number One that was intended for a solo project, but also went unreleased. Uh, His first release composition was uh, Little Bird. On the album after that, 2020, uh, which Dennis produced, uh, he wrote two original songs, uh, Be With Me and All I Want to Do. In 1968, he became friends with a really nice guy named Charles Charles Manson. Manson? Yeah. Hey, he let him live in his house for a while. He did. Here comes the Manson family. I so... No pun intended. I so want to talk about this story, but it is such a long and detailed story, and there's so many weird things, I, I have to breeze over it very quickly. Yeah, yeah. That's a so here's I have like five bullet points and I I'm if you want to know more about this 
There's a book about it. Um, there's all kinds of websites that cover it, but details here. Uh, Dennis and Charles Manson uh, wrote some music together with plans to make an album. Uh, Charles Manson recorded music in uh, Brian Wilson's home studio, and apparently those tracks have never seen the light of day. But it's probably my a good God, thing. Somebody is sitting on those masters somewhere, and somebody's going to die here in the next 20 or 30 years, and those are going to pop out into the public, and it's going to be like, good Lord. Those things are sitting in somebody's attic. Oh, for sure. Uh, Manson co-wrote the song Never Learn Not to Love, which was originally titled Cease to Exist. Uh, when asked why Manson didn't get writing credit, Dennis replied that Manson had relinquished his publishing credits, uh, I'm sorry, his publishing rights in favor of, quote, about $100,000 worth of my stuff, <laughs> end quote. Yeah, he ripped him out. Yeah, he uh, basically cleared his house out. At least 17 women were living in Dennis's house, acting as his servants. Uh, whom he spent at least $100,000 in cash on, that is $740,000 in 2020 dollars. That's a lot of money. That is a lot of money. Uh, apparently, quite a bit of that expense went into penicillin shots because they had persistent gonorrhea. Yes. <laughs> Randy likes that part of the right? story. <laughs> so the good news is uh, the association between uh, Dennis and Charles Manson Ended when Dennis began to uh, get slightly fearful of what he was doing. Uh, apparently, when Manson sought further contact, he left a bullet with Dennis's housekeeper with a very threatening message. According to Beach Boys collaborator uh, Van Dyke Parks, quote, one day Charles Manson brought a bullet out and showed it to Dennis, who asked, what's this? And Manson replied, it's a bullet. Every time you look at it, I want you to think how nice it is. Your kids are still safe. So Dennis grabbed Manson uh, by the head and threw him to the ground and began beating on him. Uh, I heard about it, but I wasn't there. The point is, though, Dennis Wilson wasn't afraid of anybody. Oh, my God. So Dennis Wilson probably beat up Charles Manson. Again, mm. I want to go into that so bad, but we don't have the time. You don't have the time, yeah. Throughout the 70s, Dennis continued to drink and do a whole bunch of drugs, including LSD, cocaine. Uh, he was a very heavy alcohol user. Whatever he could get his hands on. Pretty much anything he could get his hands on. Uh, no, I know. I'm surprised too, Randy. He also uh, <laughs> starred, even though he was absolutely trashed, he starred alongside James Taylor and Warren Oates in the film uh, Two Lane Blacktop as the Mechanic, 1971. Great movie. Uh, he continued to write songs for the band and work on his own solo ideas, but tensions were growing between band members, and he was unable to get any solo work off the ground until 1976, he had amassed this absolutely huge collection of material. Uh, and he approached James William uh, Guerco, uh, owner of Caribou Records, who agreed to sign him for two-record contract with the stipula stipulation that there would be, quote, a structured recording process. Oh, boy. End quote. That doesn't work well with any of these Wilson brothers. Right. Because of his uh, status in the music industry, mm -hmm. the number of musicians involved in this album. I, I counted 34. Yes. It is huge. And that... Probably is not an extensive list. It takes a lot of people to make a solo record. I'm not going to list them all here because it's so big. Go to Wikipedia and look at it. They recorded this in Brother Studios, which belonged to the Beach Boys, between fall 1976 and spring 1977. Uh, here's a little clip. It's my heart to see the city. Wonder why it ain't pretty Oh, I wanna cry I wanna cry
So that's a clip from uh, the song River Song, uh, the opener to the album, and it's Dennis's call to go look for a more peaceful place in the country that's not polluted and and terrible, where you can live uh, with nature a little bit more closely. That song has uh, really three parts to it. The beginning is very funky. The second part sounds like that with the choir, uh, and the third part is sort of a cool-down section, where it slowly works its way back down. Uh, It's a great song. It's a good opener to this album. Going back, the cover to this album is a huge picture of Dennis Wilson uh, mm-hmm. with a gigantic beard and and just absolutely frazzled hair. And in case you didn't remember who it was, uh, in tiny letters it says Dennis, and then in huge letters it says Wilson uh, <laughs> on the top. Uh, and then as if hanging off of this giant Wilson is the album title, Pacific Ocean Blue. Recalling the time Dennis spent on the album, co-producer Greg Jacobson said, quote, This was when he fully accepted himself as an artist. Brian had shown him chords on the piano. But as he'd become more proficient with music that came forth that was not derivative of that, having his own studio helped tremendously with the little encouragement and the right tools Dennis took off. I really think you can hear his voice on this album. There's very obvious hints to the Beach Boys. There's very obvious hints to the music sounds that were around that time in the 70s. Big time. But they are always just hints on this album. Uh, When it was released, it peaked at number 96 on the U.S. Billboard chart. But... At 96, it was outperforming the following two Beach Boys albums. So, huh. pretty pretty good yeah. when you think about it like that. Um, the near title track, Pacific Ocean Blues, is my favorite song on the entire album. Uh, something about it, it's sort of funky, sort of old rock. It reminds me a lot of a Joe Walsh or an Eagles song. Oh. Uh, and it sounds like this. So Matthew just mentioned that his his voice was just shredded, and it absolutely was. There was this huge change between the Dennis Wilson of the like early '60s and the Dennis Wilson of the early '70s, where just the hard living and and everything that he went through absolutely just destroyed his voice box. Yeah. So uh, despite Dennis claiming this album has quote no substance, uh, Pacific Ocean Blue received positive reviews and later developed a status as a cult item, ultimately selling two hundred fifty thousand copies. However, it was very difficult to get a copy of this album until the 2008 reissue uh, on CD that included a bonus track and rolled a bunch of material for what would become Dennis's second album, Bamboo, into an extended album. I did say second album there. Yeah. It never released. Oh, all right. We'll come back around to that in a second here. Finally, before we wrap up with this album, I do have to mention a song that's on the extended album. It's not on the original album. And I have to mention it because if I don't, a time-traveling 12-year-old Kyle will come running through the door and beat me up. Oh, should I duck? There's a track called Tug of Love uh, (laughs) that is not a fuck song. (laughs) I don't care how many times I laugh at the title, it's not a fuck song. Uh, It is very clearly, it is unironically about that feeling you get in your stomach when you're in love. (laughs) Or it's about a tugboat that spreads love and semen all around the harbor. I don't know one or the other. 
But I, I knew that I had to mention that in a minute. I was like, tug of love. <laughs> oh, no, it's just an honest oh. uh, love song. That's a disappointing. <laughs> so. That makes me sad. Why did it all fall apart? Sadly, Dennis Wilson's, uh, this is Dennis Wilson's only solo album. Uh, he went back into the studio, like I said, to record more material, which would later become the previously mentioned Bamboo. But it fell apart before anything actually came out. He was still drinking, abusing drugs, specifically cocaine, in November 1983, uh, the Beach Boys gave him an ultimatum to check into rehab or be banned from performing with them. Mm. Uh, he was homeless and leading a completely nomadic life at that point. Uh, he checked into therapy uh, into a therapy center in Arizona for two days. Uh, and then on December 23rd, 1983, he checked into St. John's Medical Hospital in Santa Monica, California, where he stayed until December 25th. On December 28th, sadly, Dennis drowned in Marina del Rey uh, after drinking all day and then going diving late in the afternoon. Always a good choice. Right? Apparently, he was trying to recover one of his ex-wife's belongings, which he had thrown off of his boat several years before during their divorce. <laughs> very disappointing and very sad. Yep. He was buried at sea on January 4th, 1984 by the U.S. Coast Guard. At the time, only veterans of the Coast Guard and Navy were allowed to be buried in U.S. waters without first being cremated, but Dennis's burial was made possible by the intervention of then-President Ronald Reagan. Wow. Pretty impressive. You got the Gipper involved. Right. At his funeral, they played a track from Pacific Ocean Blue called Farewell, My Friend, uh, which Dennis wrote as a tribute to Otto Hinch, uh, who had died in Dennis's arms. Dennis described the song as sort of a happy farewell. That's pretty sad. Right? It is definitely a... This is a melancholy album. It's very good. I love listening to it if I'm in the right mood, but it is very melancholy. And it's... I I mentioned this to you earlier, I think. I rediscover this album about every four years. Something comes along and I will suddenly be like, oh, I haven't listened to that in a while. And I'll I'll refind it and listen to it again. And I'll be like, wow, that was great. And then I'll listen to it a few more times in the following months. And then it kind of fades away into my collection again. Yeah. And floats around for a few years, and then suddenly I'll be like, oh, you know what? Yeah, let's pull that out and listen to it. It's a good record. It's it's wonderful, and it's um sad. Very sad. Uh, melancholy, like I already said, but uh, yeah, good, and I, I suggest everybody go give it a listen. So there it is, Pacific Ocean Blue. Matthew, what is your last choice? So my last choice is the Postal Service's Give Up. Good choice. This is actually the first record to pop into my head when I first started working on this episode. Uh, the Postal Service was the brainchild of Ben Gibbard, lead singer and guitarist of the indie group Death Cab for Cutie. 
and producer and keyboardist Jimmy Tamborello, who also goes by the name of DJ Dental. Ooh. And singer and guitarist Jenny Lewis, who is from Las Vegas and uh, was in the indie group R- uh, Rilo Kelly. Hmm. Uh, the band's name uh, was chosen due to the way it actually produced its songs. So due to conflicting schedules, Tamborello wrote and performed instrumental tracks and then sent the DATs through the United States Postal Service to Gibbard, who then <laughs> edited the songs as he saw fit, adding his vocals along the way, and then sent them back to Tamborello via the oh, USPS. That's awesome. Who who else did we talk about that did that same thing? Send it through the mail. I know yeah. Toe the Wet Sprocket recorded like the most recent record that way, where they were like just Maybe basically was it. emailing. It was tracks probably back when we did that interview with um, with Glenn Phillips. Yes, yeah. So so their album Give Up was released on Sub Pop Record in uh, in February two thousand three and would eventually go platinum. It is actually Sub Pop's second highest selling record of all time, with only Nirvana's Bleach beating it out. Wow. Yeah. Uh, so the album came to my attention, like a lot of people's, a few years later than 2003, when one of the songs from it was covered in a movie called Garden State with Zach Braff. Uh, that song was Such Great Heights, and it was covered rather sparsely by Iron and Wine. Mm. And I was super intrigued by that song and went to search it out where you know where it came from. And uh, that's when I found the original version by the Postal Service and the subsequent record. And that song sounds like this. So that first line is such a beautiful line. You ever read like a really great line of prose or poetry or a lyric and wish you had written that? All the time. So that's how I felt about that first line. I'm thinking it's a sign that the freckles in our eyes are mirror images and when we kiss, they're perfectly aligned. That freaking line is just so great. <laughs> um, so after that, this song began to show up everywhere. It was in a UPS commercial. It was in an M&M's commercial. It became the first original theme song for Grey's Anatomy, some show oh. that's been on apparently forever. Hmm, never heard of it. Uh, it was later covered by Amanda Palmer, Ben Folds, The Scene Aesthetic, Brack Cran- Cantrell, Streetlight Manifesto, Confide, Gareth Pearson, Joy Kill Sorrow, and Postmodern Jukebox. So when I found this record and I bought it, I didn't listen to it right away. It went onto my iPod. Yes, I know, I'm dating myself. And I kind of <laughs> forgot that I purchased it for a few months. You know, you just kind of load it up. Uh, and then I was catching a plane to L.A. to do a freelance gig, and I was sitting on the plane scrolling the wheel. Mm-hmm. As and you do. came or across do. it, and I had accidentally uh, put Shuffle on. And the first song that played while I was on the airplane was the one I'm about to play right now. It's called Recycled Air. I watch the patchwork farm slow fade into the ocean. 
is some serendipity right there. Right. Irony is awesome, right? Yeah. But the sound of it captures it, that feeling so well. And I just remember like staring out the window of the plane, just like cracking up, just like, oh my gosh, that's weird. But it, it <laughs> I just love the sound of this record because it really is unlike anything I had heard before. It's like it was composed on a Casio keyboard, you know? <laughs> and while it could have been very inferior in some other people's hands, it sounds fantastic in theirs. And couple that with Gibbard's typical stalky, obsessive lyrics, and it it works really wonderfully. And he has this knack for marrying these kind of morose, very obsessive lyrics with this bright, kind of upbeat music. And the next song, We Will Become Silhouettes, has that same quality. Sounds like this. That marriage with the with that bright poppy upbeat sound, and you're like, oh, uh, the lyrics make me uncomfortable, but it's good. It's um, so this album would end up getting to number forty five on the U.S. Billboard chart, number one on the U.S. Dance chart, Ooh. and number three on the U.S. Indie chart. Hmm. And they toured successfully on it uh, and talked about a second record for years, and it started to be referred to as the indie Chinese democracy <laughs> in reference to the long gestating Guns N' Roses record. And as of 2021, they have no plans to record a second record. Hmm. Um, they just kind of shelved it. They've toured. They've re-released this record with, you know, bonus anniversary edition, blah, 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 uh, but haven't put any new music out. So, and as far as the name of the band, uh, in 2003, the United States Postal Service sent the band a cease and desist letter, oh. citing the band's name as an infringement of its trademark on the phrase Postal Service. So after negotiations, the USPS relented, allowing the band use of its trademark in exchange for promotional efforts on behalf of the USPS and a performance at its annual national executive conference. <laughs> additionally, additionally, at one point, the USPS website sold the band's CDs. Oh. In 2007, Such Great Heights appeared in the background of the whiteboard advertising campaign for one of the federal establishment's private competitors, the United, Post, uh, United Parcel Service. That's <laughs> uh, just good stuff. Right? So that's uh, uh, Get Up. No, Give Up. Give Up. By that's, Postal that's, Service. Get that's, up. That's the seahorses. Oh, no. <laughs> seahorses. Again, with the seahorses. So there were so many that we had written down that uh, that may have made your list. Yeah. Uh, Temple the Dog, mm -hmm. Sex Pistols. Oh, uh, I almost did uh, Mad Villainy by so, Mad Villain. Yeah. So many other fantastic bands. But what did we miss? You need to tell us 
so we can know. If you want to get a hold of us, the best way is Twitter. You can find us at Audio Judo, or you can try Facebook at Audio Judo. Uh, if you want to send us a more lengthy correspondence, you can send us an email at info at audiojudo.com. And maybe you're sitting there saying, I really wish they had talked about this record because I know a lot about it, but I want to hear more. Well, you can be assured of it talking to us about it by going to our Patreon account. Right, Kyle? Right. If you sign up for our top tier, which is the Backstage Pass tier, it is $20 a month. However, it includes a very special personalized gift and the chance to co-host an Audio Judo episode on the album of your choice. Uh, That benefit activates after one year of patronage at that tier and can only be activated once. It also includes all the benefits of the previous tier, which, surprise, I'm going to tell you about right now. Uh, It's called the Front Row Seats tier. It's $5 a month. Maybe you uh, really like listening to us and uh, want a little bit more. Guess what? We do a lot more. Uh, This tier includes two-day early access to every single episode, meaning instead of getting it on Friday at noon, you get it on Wednesday at noon. Uh, It gets a shout-out on future episode as a loyal producer. You also get bonus mini-episodes called Judo Chops. We release those pretty much every other week in between the regular episodes. They're between like 7 minutes and 20-ish minutes. They usually cover a subject that wasn't quite big enough for a regular episode, uh, but they're great. I really enjoy making those. Uh, Also, occasional bonus content, such as unedited interviews, behind-the-scenes videos, and tiny tidbits that got cut from episodes, mostly due to us burping and farting. No burps, no farts. No burps, no farts. So, needless to say, we have a lot more coming soon. We have uh, episodes about Metallica, U2, we got another Toad the Wet Sprocket record, because that's our anniversary tradition, Mm -hmm. Uh, Joy Division, Uh, so much more music to talk about. We hope that uh, you will continue to join us. Don't forget about Audio Judo Does Jazz as well, and we will talk to you all very soon. Take care, everybody. Uh, Bye-bye. Oh, man, I got to pee. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.